The Psychedologist. David Krantz is a certified epigenetic coach and sought-after expert in the field of individualized genetic-based nutrition and peak performance. As a lifelong musician, David sees the various systems of the body as parts of a complex symphony. And as a coach, he excels at helping clients fine-tune those parts to create resonant, harmonious health and harness their creative and personal power. An expert in the pharmacogenetics of the endocannabinoid system, David is best known for developing a proprietary genetic test that helps people understand their unique and individual response to cannabinoids. He was nominated in 2019 as a top 100 health innovator by the International Forum for Healthcare Advancement. A biohacker by training and artist by nature, David enjoys working with others who have a deep passion for getting the most out of life. To learn more and book a free 30-minute consultation, visit david-krantz.com. And I'll put that in the show notes. So in this episode, David and I talk about his work in epigenetic coaching and how knowing more about one's own genome can help to optimize the human experience. In true psychologist fashion, this episode goes all over the place, from the richness of breaking ourselves down into genes and biochemistry and psychology, to piecing it back together and looking holistically at ourselves to kink, poly, BDSM, and sexuality, to permaculture and how psychedelics, sexuality, and permaculture have some interesting parallels, to different psychiatric diagnoses and the interplay of those with genetics and epigenetics and how treatment can vary, to psychedelics and the idea that knowing more about the human genome can reduce harm and optimize use, and finally, that genetics are less causal and more indicative of correlation and association. Happy New Year, everyone. Hope you enjoy this episode. We'll see you in 2020. So I was listening to this food psych podcast. It's about intuitive eating and health at every size type stuff. And she starts every episode by asking the guest, what was your relationship to food as a child? So I was like, oh, the psychologist, Consciousness Positive Radio. So I thought I might ask to start, what was your relationship to consciousness as a child? Oh, that is such a good question. Um, <laughs> you know, I was the kid that I would spin around in circles and get myself really dizzy just to experience altered states of consciousness. Like I, I have a really strong memory of like spinning around in my parents' bedroom and just like kind of falling over and being really fascinated with that experience. And I think that's something that I've heard iterated by other people kind of interested in altered states. And, you know, I was I, – I, I felt at certain moments like I uh, had a little bit more permeability in certain ways than other people. Like I remember like um, feeling energy movement in my hands at, as a child, like I was maybe like seven or eight years old and not understanding how to explain it to people and not experiencing that again until years later when I started kind of getting into um, meditation and energy practices, Tantra, that kind of stuff. But I remember like, you know, being like, why is my, why do my hands feel this way? I can feel like things moving in that. And I didn't have any language for it. Um, and, you know, I think I just have always kind of been attracted to altered states. Like I found mushrooms when I was 14 or so. And it felt just really natural to, to kind of engage with that. And then, it, you know, it, it rocked my worldview, but in a way that I was not surprised by at all. It was just like, oh, yeah, it was, a you know, much more of a remembering kind of thing, I think. And I guess the other thing would be dreams. 
Mm-hmm. And I was always kind of interested in lucid dreaming and um I was that I and again I like didn't have anyone to talk to about it until I got to college and like found other people that were interested in that kind of thing. But I remember trying to talk to my friends in high school about doing lucid dreaming practices and um looking at some stuff around quantum consciousness and just like understanding that like oh there's this layer of physics that we're understanding that we're like you know being in in biology high school biology at the time and like discovering like this quantum physics stuff and kind of intuitively knowing like oh this has to be connected to consciousness in some way like i don't know mechanistically what but um sort of having this yeah discrepancy between the quote unquote real world and all of these personal experiences that I I had had was, um, I don't know, just weird and definitely shaped me. And I, for whatever reason, I, I just love that stuff that I kind of always have, you know, just like whatever the, the, the unusual experience of consciousness outside normal awareness is, it's just fascinating. So, Mm. yeah, I'm, for me, it was very hard to be experiencing things I couldn't put words to that other people could understand and resonate with me. And finding people that I connected with like that was such a, it was like being born into a new family in a way, or like into, I don't know, new community that felt so different than what I'd ever experienced. Was it hard for you? You know, I think, um, yeah, in certain ways, I, I think I had a lot of resentment towards people and, you know, earlier I'm just thinking, I'm thinking really about like high school right now. Like mm-hmm. I felt like resentment towards people who didn't value that, you know, didn't like wouldn't, didn't, couldn't break out of their kind of default mode network awareness or didn't want to. And, uh, I mean, I look back on, on that kind of, you know, resentment now and I'm like, oh, well, you know, different people are going to choose different things and that's fine. But at the time it really kind of got me in this, like, just why is the world like this kind of way, you know? And I think a lot of people that are interested in psychedelics or altered states and other modes of thought kind of can encounter, you know, that, which I think can be very useful in terms Mm -hmm. of generating change. uh, But when it's, uh, for me, it it was never very well channeled. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I would say it was hard in, in, in that I'd, just, yeah, I didn't have anyone to talk to about it really. Like I had some friends that I would trip with here and there. Um, but it was kind of, you know, there, there's different levels of depth. You can kind of pull back from those experiences. And um, I didn't really have anyone. And I mean, I didn't really explore a lot of the stuff in the same way that I do now. And, you know, it was very recreational and just like, I'm going to go get high and see what happens mentality, which is still fun here and there. But, um, yeah, you know, I, I didn't have anyone to kind of connect with on that level. Yeah. And then, well, in your psychedelics today episode, you mentioned the first time that you smelled weed, your brain lit up and it was like, Oh, what is that? I want to know more about that. What? How did you get to where you're at now? So you're in high school trying different things, had a few people to talk to about it, but not a lot of training or like context for what it was. And then, and now you're doing really incredible work helping people to understand different things about their bodies. So how did you get here? Uh, well, I, I got to give a shout out to Erwin, you know, in high school for just like guiding some of the exploration and, and giving me some grounded understanding of like what I should be doing and what I probably shouldn't be doing. And um, so I don't know. I think 
even though I didn't have personal connections to people necessarily encountering the stuff on the internet was super important. So shout out to everyone putting out information to help people like that. Um, I have Arrowhead sticker on my laptop. Yeah. Uh, how did I get to where I am now? I mean, it's, um, it's been back and forth of phases of being really interested in psychedelics and psychotropics and then kind of backing away from them and, and learning my wax and wane cycles with them. And I think being learning how to, um, engage and disengage at appropriate, at appropriate times and kind of learning for me when, you know, it's important to, to say, Hey, I actually need to take some time sometimes up to a couple of years. It's been to integrate stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I think it's probably been in the last three or four years where I've kind of had, um, more of kind of a, a reawakening to these things and in the most recent more therapeutic kind of way uh where i've been engaging with them just like having had some um you know just more more therapy experiences more personal work type stuff um and that's this happened in a period where i actually wasn't using psychedelics at all i kind of got into that space and started really addressing some of my core underlying emotional stuff that I just had previously actually, you know, used cannabis as a way to avoid, mm. um, gotten really real with myself about that, taking a break from that for a couple of years and then realized like, Oh, I can actually use these substances now in a, in a way to kind of further that work and, and go deeper in some places where I've created this framework in, you know, and this kind of template for, self-exploration and discovery without them and then adding them in in a way that um, allows them to accentuate or um, amplify certain processes has been really unique. And um, Can I say something in response to that? Yeah, yeah. Have you continue the answer? <clears throat> yeah, I've been I was just writing an article for Double Blind on what the what people who use psychedelics can learn from permaculture. The mm. permaculture principles, how to work with the land or how to work with other people in a way that's not just sustainable, but regenerative and that takes into account what already tends to happen and builds off of that instead of trying to, to um, channel all of the energy into like a yield that we want, like growing a lot of watermelons or something. It's like what, what already grows here and is you know, abundant and useful. But um, in it, I made sure to mention several times, like this could mean that psychedelics aren't for you or that right now they're not for you. Cause I think that the hype is so, you know, it's just so real and, uh, and it's important to have a culture that destigmatizes and affirms the usefulness and the, just the place of these things in human history and society. And at the same time um, that, you know, abstinence from anything can be extremely telling, can be a huge consciousness boost um, so I, 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 that's like my, a new year's resolution of mine, I think is as I do my work in the psychedelic movement to be very encouraging about that. It's great to take a break from psychedelics or to, to decide that they aren't for you. And I have some very trippy friends who don't trip. Absolutely. I think that's such a great corollary. And, you know, when you look at some of the, I don't know, foundational culture practices it's like yeah leaving a field fallow for you know if or you know just crop rotation and moving things around so you're not necessarily continuing to deplete the same nutrients out of the same plot for an extended amount of time and like really you know moving between these different um things that will engage in and benefit from what's already in the soil but like really giving things space it's perfect analogy there 
I feel like I should go back in and add in that <laughs> analogy that you just made. Can I can I borrow that? Yeah, please, <laughs> please. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think what you're hitting on there in terms of that um, that relationship of looking at how would things progress on their own, and then how can we come in and just you know kind of bolster that or you know allow things to continue their natural process, but you know, add one thing here, move this here and just kind of shape it in, in a way that's congruent with kind of the underlying principles there. Mm -hmm. It makes, it makes a lot of sense. And I think that like it, I'm mean, I'm just going to, I'm going to extend the metaphor here. Um, like it, in terms of, you know, starting a permaculture plot, like you can start with a forest garden, like something that has like a deep, rich, you know, soil that's been, uh, you know, being built for for you know a long time that hasn't hasn't been disturbed and there's an inherent order there and you can kind of go in and, and just piggyback off that in a way but you can also do it with like barren destroyed land that's been you know mistreated and uh, has been depleted and then there's practices that that are specific to rebuild the soil there and you might approach it kind of two different ways and i feel like there's something there around how you might intervene or or you know add psychedelics into the mix where depending on where you're starting from um you might want to approach things kind of differently and i think that and i don't know exactly how to define what that would be necessarily but i think that there's um like yeah if you have a framework you know you've been doing emdr you've been doing any of the kind of uh body-based somatic therapies like you you've kind of already know how to to some degree work through difficult emotions and and things in the body that come up and like that's super invaluable for psychedelics so you already have this like rich ecosystem to kind of um engage with these things with whereas if you don't have any of those skills maybe there's a different way to approach them that might um sort of replenish things first and maybe and, and i don't know if you get more benefit out of using psychedelics therapeutically with or without that um but it's been my personal experience that um i certainly didn't get the benefit out of the out of them psychologically until i sort of built some of those underlying frameworks and like um, was able to really integrate the insights more because of that. Um, you know, I love that. So I think you're, you were asking before how I, how I got here and I'll, I'll just kind of say in terms of like the, the genetic related information and stuff that I've been talking about, um, I've got really into nutrition and, um, nutritional genetics, um, nutrigenomics and nutrigenetics are kind of the names for, for those fields uh, a couple years ago. And I started doing coaching work with people and working on, you know, lifestyle changes and nutrition and genetics and all that. And then I realized that there was all this research on the endocannabinoid system and research on metabolism and the way that people respond to cannabis on a subjective level, like things that can influence the feeling of being anxious or paranoid versus enjoying the experience. Like there, there's some research on that and I didn't really see anyone talking about it. Um, and so I kind of decided to just dive into it as much as I can and try and recontextualize some of the intention of that research because most of it was done from a problematic drug use perspective um, and not really 
from a how can we actually benefit from this information as people that use these substances, right? Like it was kind of relegated to this um, very just hard research realm. And I think that there's a lot of ways to to look at that and say, how can we actually benefit from this from a harm reduction perspective, from a optimizing your use of cannabis perspective, or again, maybe helping you decide that actually cannabis isn't really the right substance for you. And, and maybe there's some uh, kind of biological reason I might not want to swim upstream against it. Um, so that's been kind of my um, mission with that stuff since I realized that there's all this stuff out there and kind of unknown. Mm. Um, <clears throat> it just got garbly for a second. Did you say underlying biological reason for what is happening when they use the substance? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Say, uh, and saying like, um, there might be some underlying biological reasons that you might not want to like swim upstream against if you're getting some friction or, you know, negative type experiences, like maybe cannabis just isn't really the right substance for you. Yeah. Right. Which is such critical, um, such a, a critical possibility to hold because if, you know, I, I think that um, in spirituality or in, I don't know, some some consciousness people, that's a very mature word, um, <laughs> would say like, oh, you have to, there's teachings, it's giving you a teaching, and so you have to listen to it. Um, or, right, like, um, ask it, wh like, what can I learn from this, right? When like, really, maybe what you can learn is, like you're saying, it, it's just, it, it doesn't agree with your your parts. Yeah, yeah, totally. And like we we're going back before, it's interesting this theme kind of is coming up here um, in terms of recognizing when you might want to take a break from psychedelics and the hype around cannabis and the hype around psychedelics being really strong. And people are naturally interested in it. And I'm glad, I'm really, really glad people are. But I think there's a need for a sort of temperance from voices that have been kind of exploring this stuff for a while to say like, yeah, you know, it is important to know the limits and just because this works really well for some people doesn't mean it's going to work really well every time for everyone in every context. And, you know, I, I think that what you're saying you're getting at though is like um, discerning between a difficult experience that has the, um, you know, kind of something you can get, you can juice out of it and have a, you know, delicious glass of, um, self-awareness to drink afterwards versus just something that leaves you leaves you in a loop and doesn't really have much of a of, of a substance to it except that you don't know how to relate to reality all of a sudden mm -hmm. you know and and i think that there's the capacity and possibility for both and just because one presence is sometimes and the other one shows up sometimes doesn't mean that um you know either is a is a impossibility and I feel like there's a strong tendency to side towards one or the other, right? Like the most of the academic kind of stuff looks at the stuff as psychosis and doesn't ever attend to the spiritual emergence and awakening side and the potential there. But then I think you also get people that lean too heavily towards that everything is a spiritual awakening, everything is spiritual emergence. If there's difficult psychotic like symptoms that come up from some of this stuff, like, you know, that, that all, all it is, you know, the psyche wanting to break through something. And maybe that is true, but I also think there's a, a need to like kind of take both 
perspectives and weave them together in a, in a healthier way. Yeah. Mm. <clears throat> Did I interrupt you again as you were telling us to how you got here? Oh, no, I don't think so. You finished? No. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Mm. Yeah, I, I really, I felt a lot of trust in you after we started talking and to the extent that I let you look at my genome and tell me <laughs> things that I need. Um, because you do have, I, I feel like you have this tempered, you know, a knowledge of the biology and the genetics. And, and yet, like, it seems that you have a lot of respect also for psychological factors and environmental and then also spiritual. It's nice that you have all that together. And I imagine some of your other like genetic contemporaries might not have that piece as well because it's hard to fit them all together you kind of get a it's interesting sometimes like i'll find kindred spirits who also can speak those languages and it's so much fun to to really engage with that um balance you know but yeah i think a lot of people are um will have one-sidedness at the expense of other-sidedness around being oriented more towards the psychological and the spiritual versus the materialistic and the hard, hard quote unquote science kind of stuff. Um, and I think like at my core, uh, I'm a little more oriented towards the psychological and the spiritual, but I'm kind of obsessed with the, the, the the, the biological and genetic stuff because it, it's such a rich context for understanding the um the nonlinear and you know the the mystery part of it it's like um it's it's a paradox in that i feel like you can get more reductionistic but at the same time utilize that to expand the viewpoint out further you know like actually like um speaking from like an integration perspective um and dan siegel speaks to this really really well i don't know if you're familiar with him but he's mm -hmm. he's amazing you, you'd love his work he's um um he's a neuroscientist and in the 90s spent um a number of years getting together all of these different spiritual leaders psychologists neuroscientists basically everyone studying the brain and tried to develop a definition of consciousness like from an academic perspective but really honoring all of the wisdom traditions and all that and um one of the things that came out of that is that he found in like every single model of human growth the idea that integ like integration was the the common factor in this idea that in, into what it really is, is like you're separating these pieces that initially were part of this kind of whole thing. You're separating them out, looking at them separately, and then asking them to interact together again as a whole, but as more discrete individual parts. And, and when you say uh, you're it, looking at it, you mean like in the looking at the neuroimaging and the chemistry and stuff? Yeah, like the way the brain functions, the way the, the you know the psyche kind of functions, like all of these different models of like um, self awareness and increase increasing of consciousness. It's like being able to become aware of a part that you previously weren't aware of, and then understanding how that part relates to the whole. And I kind of see that in a similar way with understanding genetics or these tiny little variations that influence um, you know metabolism or things like that. It's like yeah, you can get really hyper-focused on this one tiny thing and um, you could 
you know, focus on that at the expense of the whole. But once you kind of understand what that thing is doing, when you when you zoom back out at the whole, it, it adds a, a layer of richness and a layer of deeper understanding. And so that, I feel like that's one of the reasons why I'm so interested in engaging with the biological and the, um, you know, the the genetics, not because it's for the sake of that on its own, but it's because it, it creates a more holistic understanding when you combine it with an under, understanding of metaphysics or the self or the soul or whatever it is. Yeah. Well, and then just to <clears throat> expand out one more degree, um, I know that you're also like, um, you have mindfulness about, I don't know if, if you would name them like social justice topics or, and like um, sex positive and LGBTQ and poly scene. Can you speak about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. I mean, that comes much more from my own personal experiences and just being interested in, um, yeah, alternative sexuality and, and having a lot of positive experiences, um, with therapists and other providers that actually, you know, affirm that kind of stuff for me. And, and like realizing the, the social stigma around non-monogamy and around kink and, and things like that and, um, how similar it can be in some ways to interest in psychedelics or other things that, you know, you're like, it, when you find people that are into the same thing, it's like, yeah, like you're, you know, you get it. Um, but it can be kind of hard to navigate around, um, this general society that, um, uh, looks at people that want to, uh, or it just, it doesn't necessarily always understand why people are drawn towards different practices, whether it's, um, altering your state of mind or being interested in BDSM or whatever it is, like those things are indicative in some ways of just, um, neurobiological orientations to, to reality, you know, like, um, person, you know, that, manifests in, in, in all kinds of ways. But um, I actually read a really, I think you, you might appreciate this. I read a really interesting rationale for psychedelic decriminalization based on um, just like the concept of neurodiversity in that people that are drawn to psychedelics ha tend to have an inherently different kind of um, neurological structure around being more open, having, you know, certain personality traits that actually define them in, in similar ways to uh, other groups that um, can be more way that they're psychologically oriented or, you know, biologically oriented to the world. And so I, I see that as having a relationship to kink and to other, um, you know, kind of alternative practices, I guess, um, where, you know, some people just are drawn to that. And I think there's a real need to give people space and affirm that and create community around it first. I mean, that's like kind of at the core of all of it. Um, yeah. Does that kind of answer your, your question there? Yeah. Yeah, it does. And I'll link to, um, the Dan Siegel sort of concept and that, that article you just mentioned too, I'll put those in the show notes for everyone. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think that there's so much overlap. And actually, my first, the first time I applied the permaculture principles to psychedelics was this talk I gave at Envision a few years ago that was called Permaculture, Sex, and Psychedelics. Oh my. And I was like, oh, let's look at how the permaculture principles can inform our use of psychedelics and the psychedelic movement and sexuality. So I was like, I was a little too ambitious and like going for it so much. But it was it was cool to um, I was reading Bell Hooks all about love at that time. It's just like a 
critical um, um, black feminist look at love and relationships and sex in this society. But anyway, um, just like for instance, um, the first permaculture principle, observe and interact. It's like you're not running your farm from a distance. You're very engaged in it. You have your hands in the dirt. You know the land. And it's, I think, the same with psychedelic journeying and with the body, like engaging in intimacy with someone else. It's going to be different. It's going to be hard if there are parts of your body that you're not intimate with yourself or that you don't know. Um, and and for myself, like with um, an intimate partner of, of any sort, I want them to to feel like some embodiment so that we can be like on safer ground and we can go to, you know, trickier places with more, um, I don't know, with uh, more protections in place against like potential harm and then more capacity to explore, of course, like more room for growth and stuff. And, and in, in psychedelics too, like, you know, starting at the right dose and being very, a very active um, participant in your experience rather than um, letting, you know, who you're with or the experience that you're at guide what's going on. Like, not that you want your ego to guide it or anything. It's good to, to be, to cultivate the observer, right? And it, it is observe and interact. Um, but yeah, I, I think... Uh, in the psychedelic movement, I know I'm bringing up a lot of different things, but this guru kind of concept or like, you know, that the, sh the shaman or the medicine person is like doing all of these things for you. Absolutely. That's a dynamic. And then there's also what, what you're doing and what's happening. Yeah, absolutely. And you can really tie that into like the Tantra guru kind of thing that happens, which I mean, in, in most cases, I mean, there's so many cases of abuse and uh, cult like structures and, and stuff like that that can emerge out of that stuff. And I think that in terms of the psychedelic space, like actually looking to Tantra as a model to be aware of how to, you know, navigate some of those things and, and prevent them from happening, hopefully. Um, Did you say might... navigate what's happening? I just lost you again. Yeah, yeah. Just um, navigate um, the the power dynamics, mm. you know, that I think might emerge in, in psychedelic spaces where it can be very easy to ascribe power to someone and, and give them, you know, control. Um you know, because they say they have certain powers and are more advanced and that kind of thing. And I think that's a trap that, you know, can you can fall into in so many little subcultures and, and things. But it's just, it's interesting to to make that connection. Um, I also really like what you're saying about that sense of of control versus letting go and how that really shows up both in sex and psychedelics and that there is like you can intentionally, you know, kind of um manipulate your experience to be oriented towards one of, over the, you know, towards the other. Uh, and I mean, I think that really shows up in BDSM dynamics where you're specifically taking a role and saying like, I am here to completely, you know, submit and just, you know, you are in control and vice versa, you know, someone who's, who can be, uh, you know, pull for that power and control and, and, and have a safe container for exploration of that um, can actually kind of, I can kind of make a metaphor around just like ways to approach the psychedelic experience sometimes, right? Like, like sometimes I'll go into it and say like, I have no agenda. Like I'm here just to passively experience the way that this is showing up um, and kind of be led and, and guided by it. Um, or there, you know, you can take it from the other perspective of saying, like, I, I have this really specific goal. I want to think about this thing. I want to explore this place. I want to get to to this thing. 
and exercise your will, you know, within that. And it's such an interesting, like, I'm, I'm just saying this off the top of my head right now, like, but it's something I'm going to kind of continue to think about. Cause I, I wonder how far we could, we could go in terms of like actually taking some of the wisdom that comes from the BDSM space in terms of how to relate and how to negotiate consent and, and and that, and actually apply it into, I mean, it's almost, it's not really even with like another person. It's more just like internal dynamics in relationship to the psychedelic compound and your psyche in a way. Um, that's cool. <laughs> so rich. Yeah, I totally agree. I think <clears throat> the next big topic in consent in, I'm sorry, I, spoiler in psychedelics that I'd like to see is consent. And and it's not just consent for like interpersonal dynamics, but also with the self. And from my own mm. personal experience, just like um, exercising consent and practicing consent, being aware of it with other people, um, it's ev evoked this or um, I don't know, di divulged this whole internal conflict that I have with consent with myself. Um, like I experienced eating disorders most of my life and it was with psychedelics and then partnering with an amazing um, person who just was like so affirming of my body and has like not one fat phobic atom in his body. Um, and just, yeah, who like, I don't know, just really helped me to um, feel safe to drop into some, some embodied sensations for myself. Um, between that and and moving, et cetera, I'm out of that phase of having eating disorders now. But um, yeah, like I, I would feel like I would violate my own consent. And it was so messed up because I'd be like, okay, I'm not going to eat. I'm not going to eat. And then like I would eat and it would feel like this big betrayal of myself. And, um, and also like it was a betrayal of like my commitment to losing weight. But then like I was hungry and it's just like hard to to feel what a yes was in me, which is a big part of consent. Like if it's not a fuck yes, it's not a yes. And then like maybe is not a yes. Um, but sometimes like if it's a maybe, that means that some variables could be negotiated at, for it to be a fuck yes. Um, and and like, so that that on its own is, is complex, but to throw another piece into it that maybe you'll have some response to is, I know there's also genetic components to it and like the insatiable hunger that I felt I had. And, you know, maybe my, I, I like would eat sugar, so much sugar, ice cream and like candy cookies and stuff. And I, I think my gut was like with all the serotonin receptors in my gut was craving sugar so hard and in a way that it overpowered my own mind. So it's like there were two parts that were, so there was a consent thing. Yeah. I know that's a lot, but yeah, that's really interesting uh, around just like um, things that some people might consider just like a willpower thing. Like, yeah. um, you know, are you going to eat the cookie or you're not going to eat the cookie? And uh, it's so much more complex than that. And I like I really like applying consent to that internally and having that sense of yes, no kind of push pull around like, do I really want to be doing this right now? Well, my body's telling me one thing. My mind's telling me another. How did you know? Um, how can you align those things? And that's really fascinating to think about it from a model of consent because it it really does have like it, it it's it makes it actually simplifies it in a way. I think in in some ways, like can the the different competing parts of the psyche that are wanting this and not wanting this, can they come together and agree that like yeah, this would be awesome? Um, it sounds really maybe more simple than it actually is. But it's, it's a cool thought. Yeah. Mm. 
how, how is it to do the genetic counseling, the genetic coaching with people? Um, people are bringing in all of their own baggage from their life and you're giving them advice. Have, have you, mm, how has it been to learn to support them? Yeah. I mean, you, I get a range of people in terms of everything from the kind of like he has just rock solid willpower. He's, Whatever I want to do, I'm going to do, you know, just it, it, that kind of thing all the way to, you know, that very conflicted sense of like, I can't stop eating the cookies, you know, even if I have the information, that's not so easy. So, you know, sometimes understanding from a genetic perspective, like you were mentioning some of the hormones and, and neurotransmitters and things that go into the feeling of being hungry or the feeling of being full, um, sometimes understanding where in the system biologically some of those urges or sensations might be coming from that you might um, relate to on a thought level or an emotion level. Um, sometimes it can be helpful to disengage from those thoughts a little bit to be able to say, I'm having a thought right now that I really want to eat this bag of cookies, but I know that I actually have a tendency towards lower adiponectin. Uh, I wonder if maybe that's what's actually going on, that my body just isn't giving myself the hunger or the, the satiety signal in a way. And, and you, and there's some, you know, there's all kinds of parts of that pathway. Like there's um, like hormones like adiponectin, some people produce more or less. Some people that produce less are prone to overeating and, and wanting to seek out more, you know, snack food and that kind of thing, uh, just because their their body doesn't produce that hormone in in a sufficient amount to kind of dampen down the hunger response. Mm -hmm. um, and there's uh, you know there's pathways in the brain that actually in the, in the hypothalamus that will collect those hormone and neurotransmitter signals and combine them into what you perceive as being hungry or being full, kind of that like interface between um, the the biology and and, the, and thoughts to some degree. And there's some there there's two pathways in particular. I'm thinking of one's called FTO and the other's called MC4R um, that. Uh, people with certain variants have uh, kind of diminished what they call homeostatic surveillance or being able to really know where the body's energy expenditure um, kind of meter is at the, at the right time. Like, are you really in need of more calories or not? And some people are less sensitive to those signals. And you see that in people that, you know, overeat kind of habitually um, things that can drive emotional eating. And it's like, um, I actually think, um, and I'm not, a, I'm, I'm sure you know a lot more about eating disorders than, than I do. So I don't want to like, you know, say the wrong thing here because I don't really know a lot about eating disorders, but I would imagine that um, actually, you know, understanding some of that stuff and maybe understanding where um, uh, some of those, uh, you know, kind of differences in desire for hunger, how, how that could influence an eating disorder might be helpful to say like, hey, this actually isn't my fault. I have some kind of underlying, um, you know, factors that might be influencing the way that I relate to, um, you know, what shows up as an eating disorder. Um, in the same way that is distancing yourself from some thoughts to say like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, instead of saying I'm angry right now, like I'm feel, I, I recognize that I'm having angry thoughts right now. And I know that it's partially because my cortisol is spiked right now. Like maybe if I can bring some of my cortisol back down, I can have a different way of thinking. And then you can go into, you know, breathing practices or things. And like, um, you know, so just th that, that kind of 
understanding the relationship between the mind and the body and, and kind of getting specific with it is, is one of the reasons why I love the genetics so much is because it, it, it gives those clients that, um, have a more difficult time with willpower or self-control a little bit more a understanding of why that might be happening and then be some more specific guidelines for like how you can actually influence something like adiponectin or influence um, those pathways that sense those things. Or uh, like I think we talked about the dopamine system a little bit and, and some ways to influ- influence that and how that can show up in like addictive eating habits, that kind of stuff too. Mm, yeah. <clears throat> what is something very interesting to you right now in that whole world? Let's see, man. I just read the, I, this is really fresh in my mind. I just read a really amazing paper on, um, telomeres and psilocybin. And it was like a, so, so telomeres are one of like the, um, kind of component, the main components of aging. Like there's a number of different, um, you know, vectors that contribute to aging. And we now know that, you know, it's not just one thing. It's this concrescence of all these different things, lowered mitochondrial function, decreased cellular integrity. Um, and then telomeres kind of have to do with genetic aging where like over time, you're there's more and more errors in the DNA as it can get older. And, and the telomeres kind of st- are, are the protective part of the chromosomes that ideally prevent those copy errors from happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just read this paper on a proposed mechanism for how psilocybin can maintain telomere integrity uh, over time because telomeres are what they call they refer to it in some places as a psychobiomarker in that there's um, both known you know biological factors that influence telomere length and there's also psychological factors like most of the mental health um kind of measures like depress like depression is known to decrease telomere length like anxiety long-term anxiety is known to decrease it uh but at the same time like not exercising is known to decrease it you know eating a bunch of junky profits press you know processed foods known to decrease it so it has these multiple inputs right um and he was proposing that um because uh psilocybin is known to decrease measures of depression here he was kind of comparing like here's all the the biomarkers that we know about involved with depression it just so happens that they also influence telomere length so by proxy of saying if psilocybin influences all these biomarkers that decreased depression decreased depression is associated with increased telomere length and has the same connecting biomarkers let's do some studies on looking at psilocybin and telomere length um which is an area that like I'm really excited to see grow in, in terms of not just um, you know psychedelic use for treating specific conditions and pathology, but for enhanced wellness for generally healthy people that are kind of looking to really um, you know optimize or take their um, their own sense of well-being to you know a more stable place because it's you know it's all on a spectrum like what we consider mental health pathology is just kind of like, you're just over the line. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think there's so much room for, for growth and, and self-awareness in people that like don't necessarily meet the criteria for major depressive disorder, but you know, there's all, everyone has their own stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm really interested in um, psychedelics for that purpose, mm-hmm. as well as 
from a kind of whole systems approach, like how does that psychological wellness translate into physical wellness? And I love exploring the things that kind of act as an interface between those systems, like like where the the mind and the body break down into the sort of unity thing where we're like, we don't know why it's doing that, but it definitely does that. You know, it definitely has this this effect. Um, and so I, Wait, I just really, and and then how with the mind and the body interface with the other bodies around us and how that impacts how we act as humanity and how we treat the planet. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. And and what's interesting is that is that those same biomarkers stuff, you know, the epigenetics and telomeres and things like that are that are responsive to our internal state of mind also seem to be just as responsive to social connection, social engagement and bonding and that type of stuff, um, maybe even more primarily. Um, so yeah, I was just like super blown away to read that article. And like, I, I was like, yes, you're, you are just connecting all the dots right now. And that's, what's been on my mind the last couple of days. Uh, just like someone taking the the leap from psilocybin to mental health to, you know, general wellness to longevity and kind of looking at how all these things kind of fit together. And yeah. Wow. That's fantastic. So if I take shrooms, I'll live forever. That's what you're saying. Yeah, maybe. I hope so. <laughs> I, maybe depending on, depending on what plane of consciousness you're looking at, I suppose. Right. <laughs> right. Oh, and then that makes me feel like we should also say rest in peace, Ram Das. Yeah. Yeah. Rest in peace, Ram Das. That just happened yesterday, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, when, when did you first encounter Be Here Now as a book? Hmm. Pretty late. Yeah, I think I was 24, yeah, 23 or 24 when I started learning about psychedelics at all. I wouldn't have known there, any difference between acid and cocaine, really. Uh -huh. um, I like I didn't even have the cultural references. Um, and then probably it was some at some point within that time. Um, and, you know, I just heard him speak. I heard a recording of him speak just a month ago. And I was like, wow, he has a wicked Boston accent. I didn't even I, I knew he was, you know, I knew he was Richard Alpert from the US. But for some reason, just hearing Ram Dass over and over, I was like, oh, this is like an Indian guy. Just totally when, when he was saying, um, you know, <laughs> I, I'm not even going to be able to remember what he said, but he had no R's. There were no R's to speak of and they were all as. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah. You don't usually associate the the Boston accent with like, um, I don't know, deep spiritual uh, wisdom, but Quite that's contrary. the, I love, I love it when, when expectations get broken like that. That's the best. It was the best. And what about you? When did you hear him? Uh, I think I, I first I, I definitely found the the Be Here Now book before I like ever knew him, you know, and I I have a vague memory of a dorm room when I was like 18 and, and tripping and having seeing that book and flipping through it and being like, oh, OK, yeah, this is very helpful in this particular state right now. Like, um, yeah. yeah, yeah, I know I want to put it. I'm having a, a party in a few days and I want to put it out and it's good to have those kinds of books out. Yeah. Um, something I remembered I wanted to ask you about is about the different visions and physical experiences, et cetera, that people can have on ayahuasca and what mm -hmm. you would say to those. Yeah. So we were talking about this a little bit before the show and, um, you know, I, I, I think that in terms of like different visions and, and bodily experiences, um, 
yeah, some people just experience way more one or the other or both or not neither at all. And I think that shows up in a lot of different psychedelics. And um, part of what I've been interested in is trying to understand if there are biological or genetic reasons for that. And what I've come to now is like there probably are. And then there's also probably some significant, um, you know, psychological factors that might influence that. But what we we're also saying before the show is like, OK, so um, like Stan Groff has just you know it who's done thousands of LSD sessions before it became illegal in the in the 50s you know has said that um you know there there's certain types of people that he sees just require hiring or higher doses to break through and and have um get the necessary effects and he was saying that schizo people with schizophrenia and people with obsessive compulsive disorder seem to be the people that really need the higher doses to break through and he attributes it to uh psychological defenses um that are built up uh, that are common in 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 you know those those mental states um and my question is what about the correlated biology, correlated neurochemistry associated with obsessive compulsive or or things like that? And like we know there's certain genetic patterns that can uh, influence likelihood for um, obsessive compulsive and that kind of thing. And um, whether or not those also influence the way that psychedelics are actually interacted with by the brain and the nervous system and um, you know, as kind of a chicken and egg thing, like, yes, there's clearly personality, but there's also clearly uh, biological factors that influence personality or mental pathology or uh, that kind of stuff. And um, from the perspective of like ayahuasca, like, you know, there's we know that certain people produce higher or lower amounts of monoamine oxidase or MAO. And that's one of the main things that will break down DMT. And um, I think for certain people, like I actually, I had a client, um, who did two ayahuasca sessions or two ceremonies and didn't experience anything. She took the same amount as everyone else and just like really didn't have an experience and her immediate, you know, kind of, um, interpretation was that the plant spirit didn't want to work with her, uh, which maybe is true, but also I took a look at her genetics and sure enough, she was one of the people that was prone to producing higher amounts of MAO. So in terms of her neurochemistry responding in a different way, um, she either probably needed a higher dose of the DMT containing part or a higher dose of the MAO inhibiting part of ayahuasca to experience something, you know, that someone else who had kind of average or lower levels of MAO might experience. Um, and, you know, she ended up doing a couple peyote sessions and really had some some amazing breakthroughs with peyote. Um, but yeah, that that's one thing I'm fascinated with is just like you know it, what's more effective for certain people. Are there certain genetic variants we can look at? And I'll say like right now, th there's not a lot that's really known. But when you look at other uh, classes of substances like food and, and medications and that kind of thing, like traditional psychiatric meds and the ability now to get more precise about like knowing so there's certain genetic variants that are associated with better response to this psychiatric medication or better response to this type of fat or this type of, uh, you know, or creates higher different nutritional needs and that type of thing. Um, it's kind of just a logical step and 
kind of obvious place to go to with psychedelics to say like, yeah, we know that there's going to be some personal differences and variation. Um, you know, the genetics and biology is a component. It's not the whole component, right? But it's definitely going to be worth, I think, continuing to explore that. And um, my vision for it is really in a harm reduction setting, you know, sense of like, can we um, kind of skip some of the the things for people that might not be as effective or, uh, you know, actually create harm in some cases, who knows? Um, and that that's one of the things that's popped up with the, um, the cannabis research I've been looking at is there are certain variants associated with higher likelihood for first onset psychosis with cannabis use. And there's a distinct pattern that certain people that, um, you know, have psychotic episodes with cannabis seem to have in certain genes. And so can what, you know, uh, can we just screen for that ahead of time and, give people the opportunity to say like, yeah, maybe I shouldn't really use cannabis. Maybe there's some other things that might be, you know, more beneficial. And so I kind of see that in a similar lens with psychedelics, like maybe it's not psychosis related, but, um, maybe it's, you know, the whole other bunch of, uh, that you could look at around dosage or what particular substance like peyote versus ayahuasca or MDMA versus psilocybin could be beneficial for specific things. Um, and so that's kind of just what I've been also thinking about a lot lately and, um, really, uh, really have, I don't know, high hopes for the future around some of this research, because I think it's, it's an area that, um, it's just kind of a no brainer. Like if we're going to spend the time and effort and energy to, you know, uh, get these substances back into the you know public domain where they belong, like we should also be looking at kind of this next layer of depth of like, uh, and, and just taking a cue from, from other areas, you know, of nutrigenomics, nutrigenetics, and, um, you know, saying how can we maximize efficacy and decrease harm overall? It's, Mm. Kind of, I know that 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 really shifted from your initial question about ayahuasca, but no, I I love where it arrived, and I think it gives a new meaning to the phrase "just say no," like K N O W. What Leary said, there's a lot to know. We should we should have access to all the things that we can know, and then something too about like people who might be more um, at risk of developing HPPD. Were mm-hmm. were was it you who told me about that or Brett Green? I can't remember. Uh, yeah, it's actually both. Both of us are kind of throwing around some ideas with that. Um, but yeah, there, there's you know HPPD or hallucinogen persisting perception disorder is kind of a rare complication. Um, it's you know people sometimes used to refer to it as like flashbacks, uh, but it's that persistent perceptual like visual distortions that can happen for some people after they trip, um, and yeah, sometimes, uh, sometimes that happens and there's really not really an understanding right now of like why that shows up for some people and not for others. So, you know, that's an interesting area of inquiry that hopefully there'll be some answers for soon. And, um, you know, that, that's exactly the type of stuff that I think genetics is really useful for is just screening for that type of stuff ahead of time and, and being able to say, Hey, here's, um, here's some things that you might want to know before you engage with this or, Hey, here's some things that, um, you know, might actually be really, really beneficial based on comparisons between, you know, your genetics here and and other people that have had really good success with this substance. Right. Um, and it's like, 
you know, genetics, I'll, I'll also say like, um, most, of, most of the things we know about it, they're, they're not really causative. It's more just correlations and associations, but yet you can still get a lot of value out of, um, knowing that when a shows up, B also shows up. We don't necessarily know why these two things show up together, but we can at least say, Hey, they, they do show up together. So you can make informed decisions based on that. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, no, I love that so much. Yeah. It's just, it's another great way that we can move away from this linear A plus B equals C, like even that pharmacology, psychopharmacology has now depressed add SSRI and then not depressed. And then like, it doesn't look at social factors or right. Genetic everything. So yeah, I'm all for it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, even within the, the, you know, the more materialistic biological world around that, like everyone kind of knows that they're not, they're not, that's not the whole picture. Like depression plus SSRI does not equal good efficacy really. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's, there's just so much more, whether you're talking about social factors, or you're talking about biological factors that can, you know, really radically change someone's response to an SSRI. Mm-hmm. And there being so many different depression types, you know, like there's so many different, both from a psychological perspective and like, and like biomarker perspective. And so how can we like really, um, you know, look more deeply at what are the, the corresponding factors that, you know, you want to work with, whether it's someone's social support system or someone's, um, you know, specific, like, specific brain chemical that's depleted, like uh, thinking of something called BDNF that showed that tends to be depleted in, in depression, but is also associated with all these other things. And there's so, there's a lot of different ways to, um, modify it. And it's one of the reasons why they think ketamine works well for depression. Um, why? And it's, uh, that, well, the, it, that's a good question. I mean, it's, it's like the, they know that BDNF is depressed in depressed patients. They have lower levels of it and they know that ketamine raises it. And there's a number of other things that like seem to show that when people, uh, resolve depression, their levels go back up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it seems to provide some type of temporary, you know, boost in that direction. And actually there's a, a genetic, uh, one of the, the more, the stronger genetic variations they've found as far as ketamine efficacy has to do with the BDNF gene um, in that they found that uh, people who had a certain variant that predisposes people to lower levels of BDNF uh, just as a general baseline actually have higher efficacy with ketamine therapy, like Mm -hmm. starting from a lower place. um, They actually have higher levels of success treating major depressive disorder. Um, And this study that I I saw, it was a small study. It was maybe like 25 people, 30 people, something like that. But it was a pretty strong um, correlation even for that small of a sample size to be able to say like, yeah, this actually does predict um, some ketamine efficacy just based on normalizing those levels um, for people. So it's like, yeah, that's just one tiny little thing. It's like, I, you know, you know that there's more out there. And so I don't know. I'm just, I'm, I'm just a nerd for like the, the precision individualized approach to wellness. And I think it's kind of everyone's, uh, I don't know, birthright to have access to that stuff. Um, and you know, right now it's kind of relegated to the realm of, um, just, you know, being able to afford it, being able to, 
uh, access it. But I really do hope that we're continuing to move as a society towards just more availability and accessibility of that type of stuff. And like, I think we were talking about it last time we spoke, just like the idea that when someone's born, like it would be great just to have like a set of genetic predispositions around like what food you should be eating for wellness and longevity and just like how to fuel this, fuel your individual system in a way that's going to be, um, you know, more specific to you. Like that's, yeah, just in terms of the ethics around wanting, wanting everyone to like have, you know, just be able to function at their, their highest level. It's like, these are really basic things. Like we all, you know, we're all going to eat. We're all, you know, not all of us are going to take psychedelics, but those of us that do should have, have access to some information if we can get it around, you know, fueling your own, uh, or just using the right thing at the right time. Um, and it's also, you know, a good augmentation to intuition. Like, mm-hmm. you know, most of what we do as far as what food we're going to eat is kind of based on intuition. Um, same with psychedelics. But if you have a little bit of knowledge that you can kind of bounce your intuition off and say like, yeah, you know, I always kind of knew I, I feel crappy when I eat too many nuts or too many, you know, whatever it is. And then you have some information that tells you a little bit like, okay, this might be a reason why it actually strengthens your intuition and like gives you more of an ability to focus it in areas where, um, you know, you, you're, you're not sure. Right. And you need more of that sense of like paying attention, engaging things and kind of feeling things out. Whereas kind of once you know something kind of factually, like you don't have to check up on it as much. You're just kind of like, yeah, yeah, I, I know this is good for my body. Um, I know that, you know, I don't respond well to cannabis. I'm, I'm not going to keep trying with this. I'll just try something else. Right. It, it's like mm-hmm. giving yourself just less, um, uh, creating less thought process energy that's needed to, to kind of just fuel how living your life, right? Like just, you know, does that make sense? Totally. Yeah. And an, an, a new level of being able to love and take care of yourself because you know more about yourself and um, what, what can nourish you the best and make you feel the best. I think that's the crux of it all right there. <laughs> so um, wrapping up here, something I ask every guest is what is your consciousness hack? Do you have one? And I know on your website, you have like 10 amazing suggestions or eight. I don't know. How many is it? Oh, there, there's 10 on there. for. There's a guide called uh, Top 10 Tips for Late Night Creatives. Um, I was actually thinking about this morning and um, singing songs to my cats is my consciousness <laughs> hack. Oh. And, t- t- and, and it's because like I was mentioning to my partner, I was like, think of all the amazing how much like more amazing creative things I could like do if I wasn't spending so much mental energy making up songs for my cats. <laughs> and oh. she was like, no, no, that's the highest expression of, of it. Like that's the highest expression of creativity. Like why would you want to do anything different? And I actually, like, I think for me, like, um, like my brain just makes connections between random shit so much all the time. Like I have to spit it out or it's like, it just, and cats are just a great, you know, like uh, a catalyst for that. So I, I feel like my my consciousness hack in terms of being able to just, um, I don't know, operate in daily three dimensional life with a brain that just is, you know, wants to operate in this like nonlinear kind of way all the time is to give myself permission. I mean, 
the cats really give me permission, but give myself permission just to be as silly and goofy as possible and make up names for them and, and say all the weird things. It's, you know, I got to have that outlet. Wow. That's so cool. <clears throat> I was at my friend's house the other day and she said that a song she always sings to her cat. And now of course I can't remember the second part, but it, the cat's name is Juju. And so she goes, it's a very Juju kitty. <laughs> Like she eats her juju all the time or something. She eats her kibbles all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. I think, I think that's the, that, that'll be my consciousness hack. And if you, you haven't tried it before, go ahead and give it a shot. You'll, your cats will appreciate it if nothing else. Try it today. Yeah. Sing to your cats. Try it today. <laughs> <laughs> Psychologist is Consciousness Positive Radio. Find us everywhere podcasts are hosted. For more information, visit us on Facebook or online at thepsychologist.com.